Key Out of Time by Andre Norton Chapter 17 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis Key Out of Time by Andre Norton Chapter 17 Shades Against Shadow The corridor ended in a narrow slit of room, and the wall before them was not the worked stone of the citadel, but a single slab of what appeared to be glass curdled into creamy ridges and depressions. Here were the Foana, their robes once more cloaking them. Each held, point out, one of the rods. They moved slowly, but with the precise gestures of those with a demanding and very important task as they traced each depression in the wall before them with the wand points. Down, up, around. As their feet had moved in the dance pattern, so now their wands moved to cover each line. Now. The wands dropped points to the floor. The poana moved equidistant from one another, then as one the rods were lifted vertically, brought down together with a single loud tap. On the wall the blue lines they had traced with such care darkened, melted. The glassy slab shivered, shattered, fell outward in a lace of fragments. So the narrow room became a balcony above a large chamber. Below a platform ran the full length of that hall, and on it were mounted a line of oval discs. These had been turned to different angles, and each reflected light. A ray beam directed at them from a machine whose metallic casing, projecting antenna, was oddly out of place here. Once more the stance of the Fulana raised as one in the air. This time, from the knobs held out over the hall blazed, not the usual whirl of small sparks, but strong beams of light, blue light darkening as it pierced downward until it became thrusting lines of almost tangible substance. When those blue beams struck the nearest ovals, they webbed with lines which cracked wide open. Shattered bits tinkled down to the platform. There was a stir at the end of the hall where the machine stood. Figures ran into plain sight. Baldies. Ross cried out a warning as he saw those star men raise weapon tubes aimed at the perch on which the Foana stood. Fire crackling with the speed and sound of lightning lashed up at the balcony. The lances of light met the spears of dark, and there was a flash which blinded Ross, a sound which split open the whole world. The Terran's eyes opened, not upon darkness but on dazzling light flashes of it which tore over him in great sweeping arcs. Dazed, sick, he tried to press his prone body into the unyielding surface on which he lay. But there was no way of burying out of this wild storm of light and clashing sound. Now under him the very fabric of the floor rocked and quivered, as if it were being shaken apart into crumbling rubble. All the will and ability to move was gone. Ross could only lie there and endure. What had happened? He did not know, save that what raged about him now was a warring of inimical forces, 
perhaps both feeding on each other even as they strove for mastery. The play of rays resembled sword blades crossing, fencing. Ross threw his arm over his eyes to shut out the intolerable brilliance of that thrust encounter. His body tingled and winced as a whirlwind of energy clashed and reclashed. He was beaten, stupid, as a man pinned down too long under a heavy shelling. How did it end? In one terrific thunderclap of sound and blasting power. And when did it end? Hours? Days later? Time was a thing set apart from this. Ross lay in the quiet, which his body welcomed thirstily. Then he was conscious of the touch of wind on his face, wind carrying the hint of sea salt. He opened his eyes and saw above him a patch of clouded sky. Shakily he levered himself up on his elbows. There was no complete walls anymore, just jagged points of masonry, broken teeth set in his skull's jawbone. Open sky, dark clouds, spattering rain. Gordon! Carowal! Ross's voice was a thin whisper. He licked his lips and tried again. Gordon! Had there been an answering whimper? Ross crawled into a hollow between two fallen blocks, a pool of water. No, it was a cloak of one of the poana spread out across the flooring in this fragment of room. Then Ross saw that Ash was there. The cloaked figure braced against the Terran's shoulder as he half-supported, half-embraced the poana. Why, Valda, Ash called, that with an urgency which was demanding. Now the poana moved raising an arm in the cloak's flowing sleeve. Ross sat back on his heels. Ross! Ash! He turned his head. Carewa stood there, then came forward, planting her feet with care. Her hands outstretched, her eyes wide and unseen. Ross pulled himself up and went to her, finding that the once solid floor seemed to dip and sway under him until he too must balance and creep. His hands closed on her shoulders and pulled her to him in mutual support. Gordon? Over there. You all right? I think so. Her voice was weak. The Foana. Why, Lan? Why, Valda? Steadying herself against him, she tried to look around. The place which had once been a narrow room, then a balcony, was now a perch above stomach-turning space. The hall of the oval mirrors was gone, having disappeared into a hollow the depths of which were veiled by a vapor which boiled and bubbled as if far below some huge cauldron hung above a blazing fire. Carwar cried out, and Ross drew her back from that drop. He was clear-headed now, and looked about for some way down from this doubtful perch. Of the other two Foana there was no sign. Had they been sucked up and out in the infernal they had created, with their unleashing of energy against the Baldi's installation? Ross, look! Care was cry. Her upflung arm directed his attention aloft. Under the sullen gathering of the storm, a spear rose as a bubble might seek the surface of a pool before breaking. A ship, a Baldi ship taking off from the ruined citadel. So some of the enemy had survived that trial of strength. The globe was small, 
A scout used for within-atmosphere exploration, Ross judged. It arose first, and then moved inland, fleeing the gathering storm to be out of sight in moments, inland where the mountain base of the invaders was reputed to be, retreating or bound together reinforcement. Baldish, Carwa asked. Yes. She wiped her hand across her face, smearing dust and grime on her cheeks. As raindrops pattered about them, Ross drew the girl with him into the alcove where Ash sheltered with the Polana. The cowled alien was setting up, her hands still gripping one of the wands, now a half-melted ruin. Ash glanced at them as if for the first time he remembered they might be there. Baldy's ship just took off inland, Ross told him. We didn't see either of the other Polana. They have gone to do what is to be done, Ash's companion replied. So some of the enemy fled. Well, perhaps they have learned one lesson, not to meddle with others' devices. Ah, oh, so much gone, which will ever come again, never again. She held up the half-melted wand, turned it back and forth before her, before she cast it away. It flew out, up then dropped into the cauldron of the hall which had been. A gust of rain, cold, chilling the lightly clad Terran, swept across them. The Poana was helped to her feet by ash. For a moment she turned slowly, giving a lingering look to the ruins. Then she spoke. Broken stone holds no value. Take hands, my brothers, my sister. It is time we go hence. Care was hand in Ross's right, Ashes in his left, and both linked to Vivalda in turn. Then they were indeed elsewhere, in a courtyard where bodies lay flackened under the drenching downpour of the rain. And moving among those bodies were the two other Foana, bending to examine one man after another. Perhaps over one in three they so inspected, they held consultation before a wand was used, in tracing certain portions of the body between them. When they were finished, the man stirred, moaned, showed signs of life once more. Roth! From behind a tumbled wall crept a Avakakian who did not wear the guard armor of the others. Gilpack, flippers, diver's belt had been stripped from him. There was a bleeding gash down the side of his face, and he held his left arm against his body, supported by his right hand. Valley coo! The rover pulled himself up to his feet and stood swaying. Ross reached him quickly to catch him as he slumped forward. Loka, the Terran asked. The woman killers took him. Somehow the rover got that out as Ross half supported, half led him to where the Polana were gathering those they had been able to revive. They wanted to learn. Malaku was obviously making a great effort to tell his story about, about where we came from, where we got the packs. So now they will know of us, or will if they get the story out of Loka. Ash worked with Ross to splint the rover's broken arm. How many of them were there, Malaku? The rover's head moved slowly from side to side. I do not know in truth. It is was like a dream. 
I was in the water swimming through the sea gate. Then suddenly I was in another place where those from the stars waited about me. They had our packs and belts, and these they showed us, demanding to know whereof these were. Lokith was like one deep in sleep, and they left him so when they questioned me. Then there came a great noise, and the floor under us shook. Lightning flashed through the air. Two of the women killers ran from the room, and all of them were greatly excited. They took up Lokith and carried him away, with him the packs and other things. And I was left alone, though I could not move, as if they had left me in a net I could not see. More and more were the flashes. Then one of those slayers of women stood in the doorway. He raised his hand and my feet were free, but I could not move otherwise than to follow after him. We came along a hall and into this court where men stood unstirring, although stones fell from the walls upon some of them and the ground shook. Bally's coo's voice grew shriller. His words ran together. The one who pulled me after him by his will. He cried out and put his hands to his head. Back and forth he ran, bumping into the standing men, and once running into a wall as if he were blinded. And then he was gone, and I was alone. There was more falling stone, and one struck my shoulder, so I was thrown to the ground. There I lay until you came. So few, out of many, so few. One of the Thalannas stood beside them, her cloak streaming with the falling rain. And for these, she faced the lines of those they had not revived. There was no chance. They died as helplessly as if they went into a meeting of swords with their arms bound to their sides. Evil have we wrought here. I shook his head. Evil has been wrought here, Wylan, but not by your seeking. And those who died here helplessly may be only a small portion of those yet to be sacrificed. Have you forgotten slaughter at Kyanad, and those other fairings where women and children were also struck down to serve some purpose we do not even yet know? Lady, great one, Valikoo struggled to set up, and Ross slipped an arm behind him in aid. She for whom I made a bride cup was meat for them at Kyanad, along with many others. If these slayers are not put to the sword's edge, there will be other fairings so used. And these shadow ones possess a magic to draw men to them helplessly to be killed. Great one, you have powers. All men know that wind and wave obey your call. Do you now use your magic? It is better to fall with a power we know than answer such spells as those killers have netted about the men here. This is one weapon which they shall not use again, Wyvalda rose from a stone block where she had been setting, and perhaps in its way it was one of the most dangerous. But in defeating it we have by so much weakened ourselves also. And the strong place of these star men lies not on the coast but inland. They will be warned by those who fled this place. Wind and wave, yes, those have served our purpose in the past. But now perhaps we have found that which our power will not best. Only for this, 
Her gesture was for the ruins of the citadel and the dead. There shall be a payment exacted, to the height of our desire. Whether the Poana did have any control over the storm winds or not, the present deluge appeared not to accommodate them. The dazed, injured survivors of the courtyard were brought to shelter in some of the underground passages. There appeared to be no other reminders of the wrecker force which had earlier besieged the keep than those survivors. But within hours some of those who had served the Poana for generations returned, and the Poana themselves opened the sea gates so that the rover cruisers anchored in the small bay below their ruined walls. A small force, and one ill-equipped to go up against the Baldies, some five-star men's bodies had been found in the citadel, but the ship had gone off to warn their base. To Ross's thinking, the advantage still lay with the invaders. But the Avakakians refused to accept the idea that the odds were against them. As soon as the storm blew out its force, Ongol's cruiser headed northwest to other clan fairings where the rovers could claim kinship. And Afukta sailed on the same errand south. While some of the wreckers were released to carry the warning to their lords, just how great a force could be gathered through such means and how effective it would be was a question to make the Terrans uneasy. Kerwa disappeared with the Foana into the surviving inner cliff burrows below the citadel, but Ash and Ross remained with Torgal and his officers, striving to bring organization out of the chaos about them. We must know just where their lair lies, Torgal stated the obvious. The mountains you believe, and they can fly in skyships to and from that point. Well, he spread out a chart. Here are the mountains on this island, running so. An army marching hither could be sighted from skyships. Also, there are many mountains. Which is the one or ones we must seek? It may take many tens of days to find that place. Well, they will always know where we are. Watch us from above. Prepare for our coming. Again, Ross mentally paid tribute to the captain's quick grasp of essentials. You have a solution, Captain? Ash asked. There's a river here, Torgal said reflectively. Perhaps I think in terms of water because I am a sailor. But here it does run, and for this far along it our cruisers may ascend. He pointed with his fingertip. This lies, however, in Glickmas land, and he is now the mightiest of the wrecker lords. His sword always drawn against us. I do not believe that we could talk him into... Flickless, Rossum interrupted. They both looked at him inquiringly, and he repeated Locust's story of the record lord, who had had dealings with a voice from the mountain, and so gained the wrecking devices to make him the dominant lord of the district. So, Torgal exclaimed, that is the evil of this shadow in the mountains. No, under those circumstances, I do not think we shall talk Flickless into furthering any raid against those who have made him great over his fellows. Rather will he turn against us in our cause. And if we do not use the cruisers up the river, Ash conned a map, then perhaps a small party or parties working overland could strike the stream here nearer to the uplands. Torgal frowned at the map. I do not think so. Even small parties moving in that direction would be sighted by Glickman's people. The more so if they headed inland, 
he will not wish to share his secrets with others. But say, a party of Foana? The captain glanced up swiftly to favor Ash with a keen regard. Then he would not dare. No, I am sure he would not dare to interfere. Not yet has he risen high enough to turn the hook of his sword against them. But would the Foana do so? If not the Foana, then others wearing like robes, Ash said slowly. Others wearing like robes, repeated Torgo, but his frown was heavy. No man would take on the guise of the Foana. He would be blasted by their power for so doing. If the Foana will lead us in their persons, then we shall follow gladly, knowing that their magic will be with us. There is also this, Ross broke in. The Baldies have the gill packs they took from Balaku and Loka, and they have Loka. They will want to learn more about us. We hoped that the Citadel would provide bait to draw them, and it did. That our plan for a trap there was spoiled was ill fortune. But I am sure that if the Baldies believe we are coming to them, they will hold off an all-out attack against our march, hoping to gather us in intact. They'd risk that. Ash nodded. I agree. We are the unknown they must solve now. And this much I am sure of. The future of this world and her people balances on a very narrow line of choice. It is my hope that such a choice is still to be made. Torgo smiled thinly. We live in perilous times when the shades require our swords to go up against the shadow. This concludes the reading of Chapter 17.